Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra triple A edition of Thrush and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast that juxtaposes musicals and metal in significant detail for absolutely no reason at all. And speaking of insignificant, I'm Aaron, and I'm joined as unusual by an extra A, a past guest who's stepping in at, sorry, strutting in like the queen she is. Maybe she's born with it. Maybe she's Maybelline hairspray. It's matron mama, Asabi Goodman. Yay, how's it going? Hey! You're not Asabi, you're Matt, our regular co-host. Matt Young, um, I'm not Asabi Goodman, although I want to play Asabi's husband on Neighbours, if you've listened to our um, our past thing. So, you know, here's another plug. Casting people, put us on Neighbours, we're the American couple. We don't look alike, but we sound alike. Well, kid, your husband and wife, you're not brother and sister, so... <laughs> I don't think looking alike matters there, although there are those weird couples <laughs> that do start to look alike. Mm, mm. Twinning couples. It's like people and their dogs, which I don't mind. Like, I get that. But when it's people, no. Couples, no. Stop the cutesy dressing alike. Go away. Anyways. <laughs> we can dress alike. <laughs> yeah, no, please don't. Anyways, guess what? What? We have another legendary Aussie diva in the kennel today, and he is here to prove where there's a will, there's <laughs> a Fred. So let's pause while we dig up the bones of this massive career that's seen this top dog work K9 to 5 since he first roughed up the neighbours as blue healers, then popped down to the beach for a sea change whilst avoiding jellyfish stingers in the waves. But a wave crash burned a thousand little deaths on his underbelly, which sent him <laughs> to the MDA on Valentine's Day. But hey, this is Littleton after all. And you'd be barking mad not to unleash a huge local g'day and a who's a good boy, who's a good boy, as we sit ubu <laughs> sit for some comedy, which has seen this genius become best in show after a sketchy start in the wedge, which led to no activity, only party tricks for Mr. Black, Darby and Joan at the Fraud Festival over in the Scrublands, before settling on the sand of the banks so he could dip his dramatic toes in the top of the lake and feel the rush of the beautiful life. How's that? But then he messed around and Carla Cometti caught him out. How's that? Before he could rake in another of his AFI slash actor awards, of which he has about 72. How's that? So it is with bogan pride and some say love that we entangle this heralded son of the Cairns Post into our torture chamber before the match committee finishes reading his 12 summers of cricket because this bloke bowls us over with documentaries, podcasts, books and plays and I'm starting to think he's coming for my gig as he sits on Primrose Hill with Glenn, Gary, Glenn and Ross kissing for Australia as if he were Cyrano de Bergerac. But that's easy to be when you've become Australia's next stop super show runner by creating, producing and or starring in Squint as the Total Agony Saga Lowdown and the film Rats and cats alongside man's best friend and where there's a wilfred there's a remake when his beloved hooch loving pooch grabbed usa tv by the bowls the mixed bowls so please puff puff give a howling round of applause to this doggedly talented and ruggedly handsome writer producer actor documentarian podcaster journalist creator and possibly singer i don't know i'm only halfway through emo the musical as i write this because it's the king of aussie <laughs> tv mr adams oh good god y'all welcome to the torture chamber how is it going <laughs> it's great that's great. That was a trip down memory lane. I um yeah, that the wedge was sketchy. Nice to hear the wedge without the preface, the much maligned. <laughs> Normally it's the much maligned the wedge. So anyway, sketchy's good. But it was filmed in my area. It was a uh, such a formative time, the wedge, because they didn't have money for catering, really. And so a sandwich truck would come around 
And we had sandwiches for <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Sandwiches, just sandwiches. It was like, here's some sandwiches. I can't eat sandwiches to this day. So you had to buy them yourselves as well? No, they provided them, but uh, you know, you didn't have. Normally, you have a catering truck, and they cook your meals and stuff like that on any other film shoot. But on the wedge, it was yeah, it was just sandwiches. Oh goodness me! And that's Channel Ten. That's not ABC. <laughs> no, we see what happens in Australia is the network allocate a certain amount of money to the production company, and that's how and the production company chooses how they're going to spend it. Uh-huh. Now, I don't know how they chose to spend it, but it wasn't on a catering. <laughs> it was on the terrible CGI covering over signs. Yeah, that, that's, well, that and some other stuff, I reckon. I always say there should be an app for rating the best catering on film sets. 100%. Yeah, you heard it here. Trademark. An Australian... A broadcaster and musician called Red Simons. Yeah. And then he became a, a TV star and then a radio announcer. There's a clause in some sort of bylaw that is filming going on in your street or in your direct area. You're able to actually use the catering facilities. <laughs> oh, wow. And so he's the only person in Australia who takes advantage of that. So if you're filming in Red's area, and I've forgotten where he lives now, but I have on multiple occasions, and he will just literally turn up for lunch. Brilliant. And he says, it's the law, I'm allowed to do it. Oh, goodness. There you go. I had no idea. This is a teaching moment for us all. Uh, Just speaking on budgets and stuff, uh, Adam Richards says, thank you for making a star of my Doctor Who dollies on your show. Because apparently, I think it was on Lowdown. Lowdown. Yeah, yeah. We had a big Doctor Who thread going through that. Yeah. Adam helped us out there and we we got got a big Tom Baker scarf knitted and everything. Yeah. Because Paul then is a huge Doctor Who fan and we decided to build that into his character. Uh, He played Bob, the photographer. Yeah, there was a lot of Doctor Who stuff going on. I'm glad Adam was happy. Out here in the country, my son went to visit someone who had a replica Dalek that you could climb inside and um, (laughs) say exterminate, exterminate. Wow. Goodness gracious. Yeah, that could get big. The replica Dalek's big. Well, speaking of Paul Denny, uh, in the lead up to this episode, you were, I believe, listening to Bert LeBonte's episode, which apparently a lot of Australians do, and that's the reason why they keep saying yes. I keep getting messages saying, I listened to Bert's episode. Yeah, sure, I'm in. It sounds like fun. I, I love it because I love that guy. He's awesome. Uh, but anyways, yeah, you had mentioned or touched upon a little story to do with Paul and Bert, if you wanted to quickly share that with our listeners before we move on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed enjoyed the uh what i listened to last night with bert well there was um i was on triple r one night and they had a prize giveaway and it was one of those situations where i had to go and buy this back in dvd days i had to go and buy a whole lot of dvds that i'd been of shows that i'd made and that was going to be a gift for a listener who would ring in and answer the question who has been in every one of my tv shows and films and the answer was going to be a guy called paul denny so we asked the question to the audience and uh, the first caller came in and they said, Bert Labonte. And I went, yes, actually he has. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is Bert Labonte. Because <laughs> I asked Paul to listen in and everything. I, I said, Paul, you're going to be the answer to this question. Bert's been in everything I've ever done. Yeah, so I really enjoyed it. Oh, wonderful. I, I love that guy. Great. Yeah. Yeah, he was on my dream list of guests to invite because I'd seen him in numerous shows. And recently on my first red carpet event, my first ever invite to red carpet yeah. was Moulin Rouge with him and Simon Burke in it. Oh, wow. Simon said yes to coming on the show because he listened to Bert's episode as well. So That's fantastic. Well, so you got on to invite Spelling Bee, did you? Yeah, I think that was the first production I'd seen him on, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then Next to Normal, which he just okay. whoa, knocked us all out of the park. There. Yeah. Uh, left us all very, very depressed, but knocked it out of the park. <laughs> 
Um, and I, yeah, I did yeah. medium. I think I said it in the episode. I, I when you had the mohawk. Yeah, and I saw it. I just had to say something, and I'm just like, "Fucking hell, man! Oh my god, that voice!" Yeah, it's amazing. Blown away. So, um, hopefully, him and Simon are gonna say yes to coming back together. Oh, together! Awesome. Yes, hopefully. So, I got to up the ante somehow. But, <laughs> anyways, we'll move on because we're gonna dive more into the Aussie TV industry later. But firstly, when you look at what's happening overseas with the writer strike and all that, well, two strikes happening at once. How does this sit with you as a writer producer uh, within the Aussie industry, which is very scrappy? Well, you know, I, I could go on for about an hour on the strike. I won't. But the, the thing the thing is, 100% support it. But what their worst nightmare is, the life of an Australian writer. Yeah. So all the things they're fighting against as in like, this cannot happen. This is an extraordinary. This is what we live with every day. You know, it's the, mm-hmm. the many rooms, you know, the various pay problems. But, you know, they're a proper industry and we're a little bit of a kind of cottage industry. So it's a funny thing because you, when you join show business, you assume like with acting and directing, you're joining the circus, right? You're taking a massive risk and it's a gig economy. Whereas screenwriting is a bit more like dentistry or something. You can get a job for, you can get an ongoing job, like a full-time job. And you could tell your parents that you're going to be okay. And that, you know, this is, this is a legitimate way to earn a living. So what they're trying to do in the States is create a situation like it is in Australia or like it is in the rest of Europe, where it's a gig economy, essentially. And that's part of the battle. And then, of course, there's AI. But the gig economy is a big part of the battle, which is what Australian writers have. I mean, we don't know where our next job's coming from. And we only work on something for two weeks at a time, maybe, or four weeks, maybe, if we're lucky. Mm. So, I mean, it's a bit of a dry topic. But yeah, you know, that's, uh, that's, that, that's the industry. That's it. If our listeners out there want to know more about the strike from the perspective of a Hollywood sitcom writer, last week's episode with Tim Doyle, and you don't have to hear my nasally voice in it at all. So you get to hear my American drawl. Actually, no, it's not last week. It's the week before. We've just posted an episode, haven't we? So that'll explain it all properly from a veteran's point. Like the same with you, Adam. Mm. He's been at for, I don't know, 30 something years. Yeah, yeah writing sitcoms and and stuff so yeah i mean i'm glad it's i'm glad it's over i mean very interested to see what they've actually what the terms are yeah definitely well tentatively over tentatively i see the word tentatively and everyone's like yay it's over it's over and i'm like hang on a second we've got to remember this is not signed yet so it's not signed and you don't know what you've actually what you're actually celebrating exactly exactly when did i become the sensible one goodness gracious me (laughs) We're hoping tomorrow is when they can sort of give more information. So, mm, okay. To all our friends from the show that are screenwriters, we stand with you, obviously, and we support you. And then the actors have got to come through. And then the actors, yes. all the actors that we've had on the show that are all SAG Afro members, including Matt, my co host. Yes. And Jonathan, another co host from the show. But, anyways, we'll keep moving on because we've got a jam packed show here now. I've just watched, well, when I was preparing this episode, I had just watched a movie called Emo the Musical, which you were in. <laughs> one scene. One scene. Why no solo? Why was there no? Because they'd set up a whole joke with you that never went anywhere. And I was expecting for it to, to come back with a solo, like a soliloquy in the office or something. Yeah, look, I don't know what happened. There was just a day they said, can you come and do this as a cameo, play the principal, I think. And I did, and I I do remember it was my birthday and they made me a cake. Oh, lovely. And then I moved to America the next day. Oh, well, there you go. Fancy that. Yeah. That's why you weren't in the rest of the film. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) 
Yeah, because there was this whole, I can't remember what it was, but it was sort of set up that he had some sort of issue. Oh, bad. I didn't even read it. I didn't even read the script. I don't think, I think they literally rang me up and said, can you play this role? And I went, yeah, okay. I'm moving to America tomorrow. I need the, need the money. And and cake is better than a sandwich truck. That's, that's it. I mean, it was such a lovely thing, the cake, but they're all kind of like, happy birthday, but they didn't know me. It was one of those weird things where a whole lot of people who don't know you were singing happy birthday, do you? It was uncomfortable. <laughs> happy birthday, dear. This is a ham sandwich. That's happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely and uncomfortable and weird. Well, speaking of lovely and uncomfortable and weird, we'll move on to the medal now. Now, if you could pick your craziest, most over-the-top rock star rider, like, I mean, crazy, we don't want water, or the basic stuff, what would you put in it? Look, uh, maybe a, a cat for me to pat. Kittens, cats, we always accept animals on this show. Matt, you're up. Oh, goodness. Uh, so, I guess we're going to talk about the metal album soon. No, that's not what's in the script. Oh, shit. Have you had much experience? Hey, have you? Uh, hey, Adam. <laughs> have you had much experience with Maddie? Is, uh, is Am I on the right track now? Yes. Okay. Hey, Adam. <laughs> hey, Adam. Have you had much experience with metal, heavy metal, glam metal, etc.? No, no. Look, I, I'm a very vanilla when it comes to metal. So for, for me, it was always Zeppelin, Sabbath. You know, that's as far as I got. You know, that metal inverted commas come on. Metal in the missionary position. But I loved it. I mean, God, I love those albums. I mean, they changed my life. So I don't, I'm not, my ear isn't in tune to the nuance that perhaps you guys can hear and when, when you listen to metal, proper metal. No. Hey, I'm a musical theater guy. Aaron's more of the metal guy. So. Uh, well, I'm more <laughs> punk. I'm more punk. Yeah, right. But thrash was huge in the 90s when I was growing up. I mean, everything was thrash, you know. I saw the hard-ons heaps and... Faith No More, yeah. Faith No More, yeah, I went and saw them. And oh, I love the Metallica documentary, some kind of... Um, monster. Some kind of monster, yeah. It was such a great documentary. I mean, such a fucking landmark documentary. And just kudos to the guys for, you know, for actually just doing it letting it all mm. hang out well yeah well they pretty much have their whole careers i think they've been pretty bold with yeah just speaking out totally. against each other <laughs> well being in a band sucks can you imagine i mean it's like very codependent relationship with a bunch of people who you know and you, you meet in the late teens or maybe early 20s and you're such a different person by the time you hit 30 you the growth between 20 and 30 is so huge that you're expected to be friends after that and you, remember when you hit 30s when the politics kicks in and some people develop prejudices and things like that and it's you know it's very difficult to um it's it's a miracle actually if you if you've maintained if you maintain equilibrium <laughs> for, for you know for over 10 to 15 years yeah so not many of them last have you ever been in a band no no i've got no musical ability at all None at have all. you guys you guys have been in bands i've sung backup for the pub band up here in blackall <laughs> Oh, Although I did wow. get to sing the lead for um, Sweet Child of Mine from Guns N' Roses, but I did the octave down because I'm a bass baritone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he gets up high, doesn't he? That'll be our Christmas special, folks. <laughs> I did interview ACDC. I did spend a, uh, I spent a week in Stuttgart with ACDC uh, in a hotel. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so we're, we're all in a hotel together and because it was a pilot strike and we couldn't get out of Stuttgart. So we, I was flown over there with a bunch of journalists, or sorry, three journalists to interview them. 
And um, so we did the interview within an hour of getting there. Then the pilot strike happened. So we just ended up hanging out with them for the rest of the week. Brilliant. I've spent a lot of time with Brian Johnson. Angus and Malcolm were there. And... Hey, cousins. <laughs> yeah, your cousins. Matt Drinking, uh, I got it. Uh, drinking uh, milkshakes. And they just drank milkshakes all the time. They're the size of jockeys, you know, big cigarette smokers. And Brian Charm personify that guy. I just love him. Yeah, goodness gracious me! Now that's the sort of thing that, like, when guests come on and they tell me, I'm just like, "What the fuck am I sitting here listening to?" Goodness gracious me! Like David Newman talking about seeing Jimi Hendrix play at 13 years old. Oh, well, oh, that's insane! I know, right? I have out of body experiences. Goodness gracious me! But anyways, well, speaking of a related pun segue, we'll move on to the metal now. Although this week we're jumping back into the slam pit for some good old fashioned old school punk. Yes, and I picked the album, and I picked. At random, English dogs is forward into battle. So before I explain why, it says Asabi, but your name's Matt. You've reviewed it this week. How did you go? All right. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I had no knowledge of English dogs. So I'm sort of the musical theater guy, Adam. So he usually throws these albums at me and I've never heard of or have no knowledge of them whatsoever. And so this is English Dogs Forward Into Battle, which apparently was like the really big album, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, the one that really brought them over to the US. Yeah. And so I turned it on and, and you know, it had this thing that Aaron likes to complain about where the tracks sort of run into each other. And so I didn't realize I was on track two until um, a little bit later. But I did like um, in Forward Into Line, the dum, 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 the dragnet theme that they were on. <laughs> How can you not? And this album became about variations on a theme. So when we got into the Final Conquest, um, it wasn't so much the melody of variation, but, I, but yeah, like there was this dragnet theme, and um, and then it sort of kept going into the into the into the into the first song. But then all of a sudden, it sounded like there was a bit of a um, Swan Lake Tchaikovsky sort of thing that s- snuck in there as well. And so I started to think, hmm, <laughs> these guys have a lot of influence. Uh, a lot of musical influences. Yeah, there was something in there that was a little bit unrecognizable. And, I, and I'm and i sure I heard some Tchaikovsky in the second track. Uh, we got on to Ultimate Sacrifice. Um, and I was going to skip that one and because I couldn't understand the lyrics and, you know, the diction. I always have a bit, bit of an issue with diction. But then right when I went to fast forward, a great guitar solo came in. So don't skip it. Ah, uh, yes. So that's always my thing. I get into these and I'm sort of like trying to follow the storyline. At this point, I was a little bit confused. Um, um, but again, gosh, the guitar solo has really kicked in. So watch out for those um, throughout the whole album. Um, now we're on to Ordeal by Fire. And there was another borrowed melody in this one. I wasn't exactly sure what it was, but there was something else that I was like, ugh, I, there's another famous thing. And I mean, I guess that's the thing. As you go through the album, it, or if you learn more about them, you find out that they were just like kind of just throwing everything they were just having a lot of fun um you know playing with each other the guitar the guitar player is amazing uh the drummer is having lots of fun and they're just sort of playing with it again i'm still having trouble with um lyrics although they're getting better along and then of course every time i get frustrated by the lyrics it goes into a guitar solo and i'm like yes this is what we're listening to now we're into false prophet which that's the next track which brings back that dragnet theme they sound happy about a false prophet which i found 
bit confusing, but you know, the lyrics are a bit accusatory. So that was confusing. <laughs> We've moved on to Wall of Steel, a respite in speed and tone, I thought for the beginning, but then it went straight back into the headbanging, which like, I mean, at this point, I'm just jumping up and dancing. <laughs> so I'm having a great time. And now we're up to Nasraju, and I was like, ooh, okay, I can understand this lyric. And again, I have no idea what's going on, but I'm a very happy man. <laughs> but it brought me into it. I was really happy. And then he that is bound shall be free had a kind of Beatles sound to it and a little bit of the monster mash. I tell you, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. Five days to death, starting to feel a little bit long. And then I realized that we're pretty much at the end with Brainstorm. And then I see, and it has a little bit of a, I see a red door and I want to paint it black sort of theme. So again, I'm going, oh, they're just playing with everything. They're grabbing music from Tchaikovsky to popular culture to uh, other bands that they love. And basically I decided that they just don't give a fuck. And that's the appeal of this album. They just break all the rules by stealing, changing, just rocking out. And it's that ultimate thrash punk aesthetic that uh, we all want. It's youthful, it's in your face, and it's fun. I mean, even the name English Dogs says it all. I mean, you don't have to work too hard. You know, there's not, it's not an overthought sort of thing. It's just like, hey, we're just going to do it. We're just going to play. We're just going to make some great music. We're going to have great drum riffs. We're going to have some great guitar riffs. And it just took me on a journey, like a band of young men, of boys. I think they were in their teens, 20s when this was made, having fun and kicking ass. So ultimately, they really won me over. Um, <laughs> Aaron's making a metal convert of me through this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I would give it, uh, yeah, I'd give it four out of five. Oh, wonderful. Now, okay. just um, to throw it in the English dogs, I picked this because I've dated a few. <laughs> a joke. Uh, no, it's actually not a joke, sadly. Um, <laughs> how, how big were they in America? How big did they get in America? Well, this album they took to America in 94 and 95, and apparently they were huge. Like, it, yeah, it yeah. went off. It went wow. off. And, and there's all, like, they, they reformed in 2012 to do another tour and to revisit this album. And, like, wow. all of, you read all these interviews with them, and all these American bands were saying how this was, this album was such a big influence on them and how it affected their music. So, yeah, I mean, they're pretty significant for some band that I had never heard of before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting. I, I just looked through it at Wiki and how many lineup changes they've had. But those two guys at the Wiki and someone else, they've always been there, right? Yeah, yeah. And when they got back together in 2012, it was the drummer, Andrew Pinch, Pinchley, uh, the guitar, uh, Graham Giz Butt, and the vocalist, Eddie Bailey, all worked together. So it was three-fourths of them came back together in 2012. But yeah, but there were some other changes along the way there as well. I'm always happy when they get back together. Mm. It's, like a, it's, like a, um, it's like a film. Yes, <laughs> the Blues Brothers. Yeah. That's it. Oh, look, I'd never heard of these guys either. Before we get to my thoughts, Adam, did you get a chance to listen to this? I did. I really enjoyed it. But as I said, I, I don't think I've got the knowledge of musical, sorry, of uh, of metal to pass any judgment like what, what Matt was saying. I I think that was it was really well put, Matt. The you know, especially the the uh, the influences. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I didn't get any of those references from the music. The second track, I think, was Swan Lake. It was like well, I heard the musicianship. I just didn't hear 
like someone like I'm not familiar with, had it been Sleeping Beauty, I would have picked it straight away. Yeah. But no, I didn't pick that. I didn't pick the Beatles in there. Is it Tchaikovsky that did Swan Lake? I don't know. Maybe I'm I, I'm not a ballet person. But anyway, no. who knows? Yeah, the musicianship was there, but they were just a little bit held back by the genre of appeasing that thrash, rah, 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 slam pit crowd, which again, we would have eaten this album up had we known about it as 16, 17, 18 year olds. I thought some of the songs were a little bit too long by a minute or so punk i'm used to them being a minute and a half to two and a half minutes maybe three if you know they're they're ballsy enough but some of these songs were four and a half minutes long yeah and that that i'd want to skip but then all of a sudden a great guitar solo would come in or a great drum solo and then i'd be like oh okay i'll listen (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I thought those metallic vocals to a punk music or punk theme, punk genre, like they're, they're brilliant musicians, really. Mm-hmm. Five Days and the final concept should not have been there on the album. The final concept should be last. Every fucking metal album we do, there will be like a song called The Second Track, but it will be the first track. <laughs> oh, it just... it's, it's the aesthetic. It's the fuck you aesthetic. No, don't do that to me because I have numerical OCD. So clearly punks can't count. <laughs> uh, brainstorm, again, length was six minutes and 22 seconds. Like, goodness gracious me. False Prophet, I thought was excellent. It was two minutes and 39 seconds of beautiful punk perfection. Four stars from me. I love this. I love this. But just some of the songs were a bit too overlong. Have you seen um, a picture of the band, you know, of, from that time? No. Oh, my gosh. You would love it. it. Like, I was thinking of you, Aaron, when I was looking at that picture, like, from how you describe yourself when you used to be a punk. I was like, oh, he would be so into this. Really? you got to look up that picture. I will. I will. Um, I have got pictures of me as a punk. Well, what was this? The 80s? Um, did we have cassette players in our car in the 80s? Eight tracks? Maybe. Maybe in the 90s we did. I just Eight sort tracks. of feels like this would be like the, the album you would put in the cassette player, you know, in the in this drive down the highway and be like, Rah! <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. After just breaking up with someone or yes. being broken up with. Yes, yeah. definitely. No, um, I can't find it. I printed off the Wikipedia page. The source of the world's information, apparently. It doesn't say anything about their US successes. It doesn't even have a charts thing. Oh, well, that was just all the um, articles when the about the 2012 get-together. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good boy for doing your research. They were talking about, like, traveling around, um, just having, like, they were talking about just having zero dollars when they went there and doing, like, a really bad deal. They were very young. They were too young to drink legally in America when they first arrived. And, of course, you know, for any English band, you're always a bit like, what? <laughs> I can't yeah. drink. <laughs> and they were just saying that it was just like a drug and pizza-fueled fest of just being thrown from places to place and not making any money because <laughs> the promoters or whoever was just doing whatever they were just having a good time they were just kids just running around and then like cues down the cues down the street and other bands saying oh you you know the bands they were playing with saying you just wipe the stage with that and they were like we don't even know what we're doing we're just making it up as we go along which again when you listen to the album like that sort of grab bag of these melodies that they're these themes that they keep going on and the variations on a theme it's it's a fun album i reckon i don't know if i got fun from it but i did enjoy it i i got a lot of energy from it yeah energy i guess yeah i'll agree i, I don't know if i was in a fun mood last night when i was watching i was listening i think that your, your mental state sometimes has to be taken into account 
Yeah. If an album can turn you around, then that's amazing. Kind of nearly did. Yeah. And that's sort of the point of the show. I had to listen to it a few times, but I mean, yeah, like upon repeat listening, that's often the times, you know, yeah. with this, because I'm not from the metal world or from the thrash world. And so Aaron will give us an album and I'll listen to it and I'll be like, oh, but then I'll listen to it again. And I'll read the Spotify lyrics and then I'll sort of meditate on it. And then I get yeah. enthused. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, yeah. That's how you should do it. As opposed to me at like 1030 going, <laughs> I need to listen to this for tomorrow. <laughs> I, look, I, I listened to them on repeat over the weeks that I'd prepare an episode. Yeah, right. So it's literally musical metal album, musical metal album. When I'm doing two or three episodes at once, goodness gracious me, how I get by. Yeah. But in terms of the fun, if there was a little bit more, I, and I guess probably just we, we just did Faith No More as well, which was funk metal. So that, Mm. sort of was really fun but also dark as well this i not saying that i wouldn't have had fun listening to it but in terms of the music i sort of thought was angry not fun that's why i'm arguing with you matt it is, it is a bit angry yeah it's very angry <laughs> which i'm fine with I, i'm fine with that's why i sort of I, I i find it interesting if anything that you found fun in it cool well yeah i mean i think it's playful i mean yeah everyone sounds angry and sounds very aggro and it's confusing but um but playful at the same time mm. i've just read that their first full-length album was called invasion of the porky men and as a chubby chaser i should have picked that one <laughs> it said i went with the english dogs didn't i goodness gracious me but they do have a their guitarist's name you know giz butt so which i g-i ZZ Graham Giz for short, I guess, which I Jizzbutt. read as Jizz oh. as the American Jizzbutt. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I thought that was Teehee. That's a, an excellent follow up to last week's Jizzlobber. Anyways, on that note, it, is. it looks like we've got a nose for our two minute commercial, and we'll be back right after <laughs> this. I apologize. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I thought it was back this morning. When I, oh, Coming soon to the Bloop Network from the producers of Thrash and Treasure, Around the World in 80 Plays, starring the adorable Lizzie B and Alfie Parker, and featuring the star of the show, Dolly the Dog. They'll take you for a trip around the UK, exploring the rich arts and cultural history of the UK. Episodes begin airing exclusively to the Bloop Network on November 14th, but here is a sneak peek. We are joined by our leading lady, co-host, travel buddy and fur baby, Dolly the Dog. For this week's very first episode, we're starting at South End for five days on the first stop of the Sister Act UK tour. In this series, we're going to be exploring UK and Northern Ireland's wonderful arts history and culture as we make our way from city to city with Sister Act. But first, we should probably start off by telling our listeners a little bit about who we are. We thought it would be more fun to kind of do this through a little game. So last night when we were preparing for our first episode, we secretly went and wrote five questions to ask each other to find some random facts about each other that maybe we don't even know. 
we should probably say that we are a couple. We are engaged, uh, me and Alfie, what a lucky man. We've been together for five years now and are working together, which would be some people's idea of hell, but we love it and we're in a great show and we're very lucky. So yeah, we move around the country with each other and with the best dog ever, Dolly. But I think through these questions, we might actually find out some new information about each other. So, Alfie, do you want to ask the questions first? Let's do it. Here we go. Five? Yeah, five questions. Five questions. All right, let's do it. Here we go. Your favourite flavour of crisp? Do you know what? I'm going to say salt and vinegar because I would normally say like sour cream and chive, something like that. But... I'm really in a salt and vinegar phase at the moment. The ones that hurt your mouth. The ones that burn. Yeah, the ones that burn. That's what I like when I eat a crisp. Nice. Question two. What are two things on your bucket list? That is such a good question. My questions are rubbish compared to me. (laughs) I'm going to say skydiving, but I think you already knew that because I'm an absolute adrenaline junkie and I would love to do that and going to South America, which I think you already know as well. Alfie and I are very, (laughs) like, finance conscious, I would say, and we're actually really rubbish at treating ourselves. But I've decided that saving up to go to South America, not even with Alfie, but with my mum, is kind of the next big thing that I'd love to do. So that's probably, yeah, my main thing I would love to do. Okay. If your life was a song, what would it be called? Why are these questions so good? That's not the answer. My questions are going to be really disappointing after this. I think it would be called... This is going to be such a cheesy answer, right? Something like, I never thought I'd actually do it. No, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think it would be kind of referring to, like, I have achieved so much that I have always wanted to, but I never actually thought I'd get to do it. That's, yeah, it's nice. So, hey, good answer. There we go. What does not belong on a pizza? Pineapple. You see, I disagree. <laughs> I mean, I've only, I have, I only ever had it about twice. Pineapple on a pizza is great. The thing is, though, you know I'm not the biggest fan of, like, fruit with... In general. <laughs> no, that actual burn of it all, though. Fruit in general, you're actually saying me. No, fruit with, like, savoury foods. Like, I don't really do, like... You know how some people are really into, like, raisins and stuff? I just can't bear it. Yeah, yeah. So, pineapple, no, that's sacrilege. Right, was that your questions? Oh, I've got one more. Oh, God. Okay, here we go. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I feel like it changed quite a few times in my life. So, as a kid, definitely pop star was top of the list. But then I actually still have PTSD from this time when, at primary school, I was sitting with my friends and we were designing costumes we were going to wear to be pop stars. And then I drew a picture of me in a denim crop top and the girl sat next to me went, that's not a crop top, it's a bikini from Marks and Spencers and you can't wear it to be a pop star. And at the time it was like the meanest thing someone had ever said to me and I still have PTSD, so that was the day that that dream died. Then I felt like pop star was like top of the list, but I actually, in a sensible way, wanted to be a newsreader. So that's what I thought I would actually end up doing. And then becoming an actor was just... A mistake. (laughs) What have I done? (laughs) No, I'm like really happy, but I think I was trying to be like realistic, but now I'm actually doing the best job ever. Yeah, cool. So my questions are so rubbish.
compared to what you've just asked me, it's literally like a five-year-old's written them. Normally, I'm the rubbish one, so that's that makes sense. Alfie's making a really good impression in the first episode, and I'm just letting everyone know. First impressions are important. You'll notice as we go on that I get progressively more rubbish. Yeah, to be fair, the only way is up to me, and the only way is down to me, that's fine. Right, here we go. Anyways, we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm old Aaron, that's young Matt, and we're joined by Aussie TV icon and dog's best friend, Mr. Adam Zwa. And I hope I'm saying that correctly and I probably should have. Yes, you are. Okay, that's all right then. There's two sections of the family. There are the Zwa's and the Zwa's and the the Zwa's think the Zwa's are up themselves. Uh, yeah, so in, in Northern Victoria, that's where I'm, from, where my family's from. They're all Zwar, um, and and he go, oh, you Zwar, are you? What's the name come from? Like, where where's yeah. that from? Is that I think it's place? a shorter name, but it's German. It's German. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we come from Saxony. We all, I think, we we're religious refugees. We all came out when that Lutheran Church kind of uh, split up a bit, and they came to South Australia. All the Germans um, in the late eighteen hundreds. I guess they went to America as well around that time. In my family, well, I'm like second generation. Polish American, but it's interesting to watch where like the like the Bialystok Jews, like a lot of them came to Melbourne. Yes. <laughs> um, so it's just interesting to see where people and in like the area, the Polish area that I'm from is a cult a Catholic Polish area, but like it was like people called it the cabbage belt, you know, where yeah. in Massachusetts there was factories, there was work, you know, one family moved there, then a bunch of families moved there. So many belts in America, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Anyways, we'll move on because we are running over time. Uh, I would love to see or create a Wilfred board game. Please let me create one one day. Oh, yeah, go for it. Uh, but also on Wilfred, I would just like to thank you on behalf of myself and my fellow students because watching that, uh, I think it was 2005, I'm thinking, um, when this episode aired or some, when I saw it, I don't know, I don't know if I saw it when it aired, I do not remember, but either way, there was a one particular episode where I am watching it and a former teacher from my school, Adam, is standing there butt-fucking-naked in front of us all with his willy hanging out. Oh my god. That was my teacher from school. He was a substitute teacher, Jim Daly. Yeah. What have you done to us all, Adam? You have traumatized us all. And I'd actually worked with him as well in theatre. Oh, wow. We had to fake tan him. We had to, like, give him the fake tan all over, even his willy. I mean, do you fake tan your willy normally? I don't know. Yeah, people do. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, I've seen it and I've had it done. Yeah, yeah. Had it done, not done it. Let's just clarify that. Had it done. (laughs) So that was a a shock. I'd worked with him years before in theatre with the Melbourne Workers Theatre. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I didn't remember seeing him in Melbourne Workers Theatre. So you were in that, were you? Uh, yeah, Tower of Light, like a whole casino oh. thing with um, Daniela Farinacci and oh. Jim Daly was in I love Daniela Farinacci. My professional debut. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I so so that was um that was a little bit later. So th- that episode would have screened uh, 2011. Oh, was it? Oh, whenever it was. See, I'm traumatized. Traumatized. No, that's all right. But no, it was that nerdist parent. So what happens is um, Adam goes home to Cindy's or Sarah's parents' house and they're all nerdists. 
I remember this. <laughs> yep. Yes, that was my teacher, Matt, a substitute teacher for a day, <laughs> but I already knew him. <laughs> Sorry, Adam, it's your story. No, no, it, it was, uh, but I just remember, and then I, you know, and then the thing is, I had to get naked as well, which is the first time I thought, yeah, I'd be fine getting naked, but it's actually a bit confronting getting naked in front of a whole lot of people. So um, yeah. I didn't, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Um, so to all those people, all those actors out there who've had to get naked and give interviews about how hard it is, I now understand. Yeah. You know, it's a difficult thing to do. Yeah. Unless you're an exhibitionist, I, I don't know. And you just do it all, all the time, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, so now I feel seen anyways. <laughs> Quickly, Matt, can you throw in the Bogan Pride question here? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we, I, I have to talk about Bogan Pride. <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, so of course you were in the cast of Bogan Pride, Rebel Wilson's show back in 2008, I think. Yep. Uh, I remember taking a DVD copy to LA and giving it to one of my friends who worked for the Lifetime Network at the time. And I said, you have to check this out. So can you explain to our American audience what a bogan is? In Queensland, when I was growing up, we had categories. So Bevan was a, like a watered down bogan. And then you you graduated to bogan, you know, whereas Melbourne, it was just Bevans and bogans were all in all in together, you're a bogan. It's, it's pretty much, yeah, it's white trash, essentially, to an American audience. Slight hillbilly vibes sometimes, um, but it's more of a catch-all white trash hillbilly sensibility. Suburban redneck. I remember seeing um, her Spunks show up in um, in Sydney that Nicholas Brown and a bunch of people were in, which was sort of like, feel, felt like it was a bit of a precursor for Bogan Pride. Did you know Rebel or had you worked? No, I didn't. I, my, I met her in two thousand and five for the wedge and we did the wedge together and became really good friends and and then bogan prize asked me to play the sleazy teacher which i did and had a great time and then caught up with her in, in la a few times but then it's just one of those things when one of your friends becomes ridiculously famous you you don't know whether you should call them anymore right you don't feel comfortable really because you it's like yeah. they've gone to another dimension does that make sense yeah yeah, totally. I think it works both ways. So I think both sides are thinking that about each other. Like, I think you're right. I yeah, you're right. maybe they're too scared to reach out to me and or whatnot. And and you get swept up in this whole world. Like it, it's been said that many times that people get swept up in Hollywood. It's not just a matter of you go there and you get a job and that's it. Your your life's the same. That's not how it happens. A hundred percent. There's PRs. There's managers. There's there's a whole lineup of people behind you. You know when when you become at, at a yeah. certain level. I know this because I have to jump through hurdles through all those people just to get certain guests on this fucking show. Anyways. I know. Look, you know, the, the thing is, what, what I love is that I did see her again in 2016 or 2017. It's just amazing how confident she is now, which is really great. And it's just like she's just become the person she always, you know, could be. And, um, yeah, no, she's – I'm really, really proud of Rebs. She's done such a great job and, uh, you know, and – um, you know, she keeps on God, she manipulates the media like no one. I mean, she's just got a different story. Like every every few months, something else about it comes out and just go, Yeah, good on you. I know she's thinking about it. I know she's playing the game. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that's it. And that, that's the, the world that she is swept up in. Yeah. But anyways, we will move on to the musical now. This week I picked the original Stoner Dog, not Scooby Doo, who is represented on my wall again. Yes. But Snoopy the musical. So before we Race for your life, Charlie Brown. I don't know what joke that is. I'm going to read my review. It's a it's a drag race thing, isn't it? Oh, no, it's the title of a Charlie Brown, a Peanuts movie. That's what it is. Oh. So, so before we race for your life, Charlie Brown, I'm going to read my review. There we go. It landed. <laughs> Anyways, 
When I first decided to take Snoopy for a walk, it's admittedly with bias. I love Snoopy and I love dogs. Five stars. No? Oh, good grief. Okay, so having seen your good man, Charlie Brown, I knew what to expect from this Snoopy-focused sequel. A vignette piece. So after the past few vignette musicals, I hesitated for a moment, then remembered dogs before unleashing the overture. At three minutes long, I can hear Spencer howling with delight. The World According to Snoopy, also an alternative title for this show, begins and immediately I met with that most ever delightful of sounds. Adults trying to sound like children. Great. So to spare us all that bad grief, I'm going to read the rest of my review like an adult. (laughs) Four stars. With slightly more recognisable performances, this album would have been elevated beyond these adorable songs and characters. Especially, professionally, it should never be a matter of name plus aesthetic only as we discussed last week with Susical. Anyways, give me a double bill of Beagle Boys in repertory off B, with both Peanut shows alternating and an everlasting gobsmacking supply of stunt casts, and the world would be a much better place. And to Snoopy, you are always a good boy. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I liked it, but I th- sort of thought the voices didn't really give us individual characters in this recording, which we did the London cast recording, because there's not just a piano, there is actual yeah. instruments. Do, do some people, some musicals just do the cast recording with the piano? Yeah, a lot of off-Broadway will, because it's right. tiny theatres, so... I mean, it's not that yeah. they're bad or anything, it's that if we've got the option to hear songs as fully as they can be realised, then we will. Like the through line of having Snoopy trying to prove himself to Charlie Brown just made me sad. Like, we should just call this, you're an ungrateful dick, Charlie Brown. Because yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the connecting thread here is Snoopy's trying to prove himself to be a good boy. Uh, just a few thoughts. Macca's toys, we used to have the Snoopy toys from all around the world. And they were collectible things. And they were like $2 each or something. And in a different cultural costume they release them now they get cancelled for being racist but i learned so much about the world then knowing what i know now i'm so triggered by that song because wouldn't we all love to relive life knowing what we all know now uh and the vigil also triggered because who hasn't been stood up for a date uh andrew lip our past guest also wrote a song called marriage material I think it was called or husband material or something like that. Um, and I'd like to hear it if I can possibly hear it because Andrew Lippo is a friend of the show. And and I watched the animated film and it was funny. I loved it because I love peanuts. I'm even wearing a freaking peanuts t-shirt and I'm a grown ass man. So yeah. Yeah. It's I had a Snoopy balance on that house. I always wondered that as a kid. Like it's like a, cause it's, it's a pointy roof, right? Yeah. And he's able to sleep on it. Yeah. How is that? Oh, I was just assuming there was like a flat bit on the top. But yeah, I, I hear you. It would be a pointy roof, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I was a big Snoopy fan as a kid. I had all, I had heaps of Snoopy dolls and Snoopy wallpaper, and I couldn't understand why it was called Peanuts and not Snoopy. So the the idea that Snoopy has to impress Charlie Brown, you know, of course, I mean, look, should be the other way around. Come on, I mean, he's a he's a Red Baron. I'm pleased that you know about um, Snoopy, Adam and Aaron, because you know, when I first moved to Australia, my husband was like, "Ugh, get all this Snoopy stuff out of my house," because I. 
We like because the this they used to have holiday specials in America, so like you could watch cartoons at night. So cartoons used to be like a Saturday morning thing and Saturday morning yeah. only, and then the Charlie Brown specials would come on um, in the evening, and mm. so you, you could watch like Thanksgiving Charlie Brown or Christmas Charlie Brown or whatever. And it was an excuse to watch um, cartoons in the evening. Yeah, I am such a fan. I mean, it's meant a lot to me, but I didn't really see the cartoons. I, I saw the um, so when I, I saw the stuff that appear in the paper. What do you call it? I mean, I just read the, the strip. Yeah, and that was because that's all we got in can. We didn't get any. Uh, I mean, we only had um, ABC and FNQ ten. Oh, did you? Oh, wow. Gonna say. Now, what did you think of this musical then? As a Snoopy fan, did it convey that world for you? Look, I only li- listened to it last night very uh, briefly. I mean, you know, it, it was a real. It was a summer summertime feel good musical uh about uh you know the american dream <laughs> you know i i really liked it you know but i guess in my, in my life i've only i mean i love music i say i love musicals but when we think about it i've only ever gone and seen the big the really big ones um i never had that exposure to like what mate what you would have the off-broadway stuff and oh uh, so when a musical comes to australia it's generally because it's it's big and it's a bit of a box office draw, which is a shame. It is a shame because you miss out a lot. That that's why I love spelling bee that Bert was in, and we talked about it at the start of the show. Because you know it's nice when a, a state theatre company does a musical that's not necessarily like a Broadway, you know, extravaganza. You know, it's something smaller with a more nuanced story. But yeah, I yeah I I really liked it. I thought it was great and it made me feel good. Um, and uh, yeah, Snoopy fan. Snoopy, uh, obviously, Wilfred has a lot of its kind of, um, you know, I know they're different dogs and everything, but the whole anthropomorphization and everything, that that all comes from, you know, my love of Snoopy. Yeah. Oh, wow. I would have presumed Scooby-Doo because of the whole stoner thing. Well, I think maybe Jace was interesting. Look, I don't know. We didn't get Scooby-Doo in cans. Um, so for, as I'm growing up, not until I was a teenager did they start to get FNQ 10. So it was all ABC. So I grew up on the goodies and, and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and whatever I read in the Ken's post, which was fortunately Snoopy. <laughs> There's a song in Snoopy called Poor Sweet Baby, which Peppermint Patty sings um, sort of towards the end, um, which I think is so beautiful. <laughs> like, I mean, honestly, I was listening to it. And I was like crying. And, yeah, it, yeah. you know, it's, it's this don't, uh, don't despair uh, for smiles or what I'm there for and all this sort of stuff. And then I think at the very end, she's like, you know, she sort of disses him. It's sort of like, you know, when Lucy used to pull the football away when Charlie tried to kick it. But um, yeah, I think there's some great songs in here. I mean, there's there's some songs that aren't that great, but um, but also the Edgar Allan Poe song is epic. Um, where they're yeah. trying to like, the yeah. report about Edgar Allan Poe, and then you know, and it's it's fun. Yeah, I, I I like this musical. I really liked it. Yeah, I'd love to see it in repertory with You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, with the same cast. It, it, it doesn't get done as much as You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown either. It, that one seems to be the, I guess, the more popular one. It's been done on Broadway. They had a, yeah. a very popular revival. When was that? Two thousand with um or 1999, which Andrew Lipper had written new songs for and, and sort of helped rearrange or whatnot and had a great cast bd wong you know from jurassic park he won no roger bart sorry from oh he's in desperate housewives he's just done a back to the future on broadway he won a tony award for playing snoopy and i oh, don't wow. think snoopy sings or talks at all in the show so he must have in, been in good. Charlie, you're a good man charlie brown he doesn't talk no i don't know oh, he sings up time oh does he oh. yeah i saw that production kristen chenoweth was in it as well and anthony oh, wow that was oh. a fantastic cast kristen was crazy good good in it but she is always good in everything so yeah Yeah, like she had a song written for her 
by Andrew, like specifically for it. Yeah. And it sort of made her and, a star. Yeah. And Clark Gessner, who wrote um, who wrote the show originally, was also like a friend of one of the off-Broadway theater companies that I used to volunteer at. Um, and he did it. He has a review called The Jello is Always Red, which is just all these quirky little songs um, that are quite fun. I'm not that he wrote Snoopy because that was uh, Larry Grossman and Hal Holiday. But, you know, we, we give our shout outs to everybody. <laughs> so did you? So Kristen Chitterworth, she was in the West Wing, wasn't she? Yes. She was married. Was she married to Aaron Sorkin for a while? I think so. She dated him for a while. Yeah. Because yeah, I listened to the, the West Wing podcast for a long time and. So each episode, they used to come up with it. The, the guest star of that episode might pop in, or or but people from the writers' room. She was great in that show, and I mean, if really you look was. at like you know what's happened with the whole Trump era, and you know Sarah Huckabee Saunders and all these other people that have come into it, like that character, man, she, yeah, that, it was on point. Uh, there's that great line where C.J. Craig says, "Um, because they're looking at the height differential," and she says, "I can't believe we're the same species." <laughs> <laughs> Sales and JD's like six foot two. Yeah, yeah. Kristen's like, yeah. Four eleven, I think, or something. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Love to have Alice and Jenny on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I actually did a show with Kristen like back in the day before she was famous. Did you? We did a reading of a musical called Tiffany, which is about Tiffany the jeweler's son who created the Crystal Collection. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. It was sort of a little bit Sunday in the Park with George and Kristen played the sort of the girlfriend or the wife of Tiffany's son. Anyway, it, it she was hilarious. Yeah, she's such a an artist like honestly her technique is flawless we'd be crying and she'd be hitting these beautiful high notes and then she'd go because she was supposed to be dying and then she would just go excuse me <laughs> <laughs> you know, laughing and we'd be like ah it was lots of fun you realize over there when you are actually playing a bit of a football analogy but it's it when people kind of make the jump from say reserves or vfl to afl they just say how the pace is so much quicker and and everyone's so much cleaner with their hands and things like that it's like that's kind of what it's like when you're acting with it's like oh i get the the comedy timing is so precise and like i, I did a read through with wayne knight who played Newman on Seinfeld, and I went, oh. And Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But just on point, and he, you know, and he, he did an Australian accent too. Oh, it was, wow. uh, yeah, I know you got, anyway, it, it was, it was one of those experiences where you go, okay, well, this is like, this guy's on steroids. It's the acting equivalent of um, competing someone who's just completely just, which yeah. is so good. Look, I, I feel that way sometimes with the guests I have on this show and it's not even acting or performing. It's even those introductions, having Broadway it, singers and stuff on here. I'm like, it's intimidating. Their personalities are, yeah, they're huge. Yeah. Yeah. And for the adults in the room, wah, 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 wah. we'll be back after this. <laughs> G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. 
Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge, though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision. Ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain, Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbire Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and, sadly, outside Tina's house. 
Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Anyways, we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Matt the Quizmaster, and we're joined by Australia's next top backyard cricketer, Adam Zwar. So we've just got a few (laughs) questions about your hopes and dreams for the future. Now, am I correct in suggesting or lamenting my heartbreaks that the one-two punch sitcom style that raised me is now dead in Australia. Yeah, look, really hard to do because for a start, Australian actors have got a very slow cadence and so you need to speak quickly if you're going to do uh, multicam. And it's very rare. There's only one or two people. And in fact, there's two people and they both come from the same family who have done been successful in multicams in America and that's Josh and Ben Lawson. Um, but they've lived there long enough and they have a quick, they speak quickly because whenever you're on set in America, one of the notes for Australian actors, even when they're speaking with their Amer- perfect American accent is quicker, speak quicker. Um, and it, it's, uh, so if you're speaking the cadence that I'm speaking in now in a multicam, then everyone's going to go to sleep. You, you just... 
you, you know, it's a, it's not our home territory. It's not our home turf. And, um, you know, they did it all together now and Hey Dad and everything, but I didn't even really watch those shows. I wasn't that interested. So also, um, you've got a, a situation where, um, streaming is so people want more from their comedy now it feels they want a little bit more of a dramatic arc and that's multi-cans not the best place for that uh yeah so does that make sense you know in, in the sense that you, you you yeah you want a little bit of pathos as well in your comedy I don't know if our, well, our sense of humor does work, I think, in terms of like the, the jokes we say, but the quirkiness of our humor, I don't know would work these days in a comedy like it did back, like with um Kingswood Country and stuff and, and Bullpit, yeah. you know, it was able to work then. Obviously, the, the sense of humor was very offensive back then. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking no, about but quirk. it was the singularity about Australian society. It, was like, it, was, it wasn't like little kind of ghettos that there are now. We all had a similar kind of sense of humor and, you know, we could laugh at this and hey, it's all fine and uh, <laughs> we're all a bit, you know, a bit wrong. And now there's just quite a dispersed society that yeah, makes sense. Yeah. yeah I, but at the same time, overexposed. Yeah. And Americanized. What's beautiful about multicam is you just do it in an afternoon and you got a live audience and there's a whole lot of huge energy about the production. People don't like shouting either on television with comedy these days. Now we've, we're kind of, because single cams become so prevalent, that, you know, people speak quite quietly and sometimes that's funnier. And when you're on a, on a soundstage in front of an audience, there's a lot of, ha ha, you're speaking like this and that's not necessarily as funny, you know? So mm -hmm. you, there's some problems there. A lot of people want to do it because it's it makes great economic sense for a production company to do it it's cheaper but uh i don't know if anyone will watch no. you've got to be good fuck you got to, i mean i'm not saying it can't be done but maybe there's got to be some sort of different way that they do it just some sort of uh, different take on that format that might that might make it work hmm. speaking of regionality you know with comedy and you know it's funny because when i think of wilfred because i think because i saw uh the trot fest film oh yeah it was Trump, right? Yeah, yeah, that, yep. I'm always picturing it in Sydney, but I, I don't remember where the TV series is, um, is takes place. Is it in Melbourne? Melbourne, Melbourne. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you grew up in Cairns, like in tropical, far north Queensland, and then you moved to Melbourne. Yeah. So why the hell would you do that? It's freezing. Melbourne is excellent. That's why, Adam. Melbourne is the <laughs> best place in the world. That's their only answer. Sorry. I did have a dream to move to Melbourne always as a kid. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it was It was like I, I wanted to move to Melbourne or London. Oh. But Melbourne was easier to go, get to. But if you wanted to be in show business, you just couldn't be in, in Cairns or Brisbane even. I mean, there was a film a friend of mine made called All My Friends Are Leaving Brisbane. You know, we, we yeah. all left in the 90s. We, you had to get out of there. What Your right. only alternative was to be an extra at the Gold Coast Movie World Studios and oh. an American film. That was your only way you are going to make any money. So, no, you always made the – a lot of Queenslanders bypassed Sydney and went straight to Melbourne, down uh, through Dubbo on the Newell, Newell Highway. Yeah. We do the opposite. We go up there. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, you, you kind of go up there after you've had about, like, I was in Melbourne for 20 years, so yeah. it's 20 winters. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's funny that you say that about Queensland. There's a big um, push from the union right now about, you know, making local content and hiring local actors. And it still sort of feels that way sometimes that we can only just get cast in, um, 
the extra parts like yeah. you know Anna McGann wrote a great article about it uh, how you sometimes have to move out of Queensland to get hired back into Queensland oh totally yeah so that, that was always the case even in my day okay so you've got to get stars to play the you know the first two roles in any any film or TV show you're making now and then the 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 next so that's one and two on the call sheet taken care of three and four and five probably need to be diverse so there are stipulations that need to be obeyed before you even start to worry about Queensland mm -hmm. but you know screen Queensland um there's a lot of money there that you know and tax breaks and everything so filming in Queensland's great it's just as an actor you're probably still hovering around day player stuff yeah yeah <laughs> yes we are <laughs> you know maybe a block you know if it's you might get a, a character that does a two episode block and something but you know there's some stars have moved to Queensland recently I mean David Wenham lives in Queensland now Caroline O'Connor lives in Cairns yeah yeah Darren Gilshannon's up here a bunch of people are up here so yeah, yeah. Um, so go, going along in this um, my next question was actually about the challenges of balancing the responsibility of wearing all of the different hats the actor the writer and the producer on one project what's that like yeah it that's like a little stressful I, I I now am in a situation where I kind of go, I'm much happier behind the camera if it's my show because you lose a sense of power the minute you put on makeup and sit in front of the camera. The crew doesn't respect you as much. You're not seeing what's going on everywhere. Whereas if you're behind the, the split, you're, you're seeing everything that's going on. You know who's being slow, what departments are being slow, uh, what departments are doing well, what departments aren't. And so, you you know, you're keeping an eye on all, all of that. Whereas as soon as you kind of, you know, put on a, a funny costume and some makeup, and hair and makeup are kind of styling you and everything, you're missing all that. And also the crew treat you like an actor. They'll always be nice to actors, but they infantilize them. Because they have to, because essentially, you know, you, you get treated, you get treated like a prince or princess for the day, and that's lovely. Yeah, paper dolls. Yeah, it's only because they want you to do your thing and then fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get picked up going to set. You get an umbrella put over your head. You, you know, it kind of really appeals to all our narcissism needs. But essentially, it's just so you can perform your little trick. Mm -hmm. And then when you step back behind the camera, then is it hard to grab that power dynamic back? I'll only do it once or twice, like little for you know for a day or for a character. But no, if that's if it's just that, then they then they said, oh, he's essentially the boss in commas do, doing his little thing. That's all fine, especially if you're not an asshole. Mm -hmm. But you you don't want to make a habit of it. The, the situations where I have been like in a lot, like Wilfred and Lowdown with Lowdown, Amanda Brocci was the director. And she was the co-creator with me. So she was all over it. So I could be just concentrated on the acting side of things. And Wilfred was a bit more complicated. <laughs> it was a real estate because it wasn't, it was, I had to kind of be over the narrative side of things more than the other guys. Tony was more about tone and look. He was the director. And Jay's probably more about the comedy side of things. Yeah, yeah, it's very funny. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's very yeah, I mean, you, you know, I was trying to describe um, to one of my friends because we were talking about this last night and that we were going to meet you. And she was saying, Oh, I remember that. And I said, Yeah, I said, Adam's the one that's sort of like is the, you know, just the straight guy. The straight guy. <laughs> he's yeah, yeah. Guy that just sort of, he's hilarious because he's so like down the line. Essentially, you're setting up jokes. That's the job. Yeah. Mm. And you can't get in the way. You got to let the funny person be as funny as possible and just make sure you hit the ball to their forehand. Yeah. Are my co-hosts listening to that? <laughs> uh, we can describe you as the Australia's Elijah Wood. Yeah, well, that's right. That's it. Yeah, he's got a bigger backpack balance than me, though. <laughs> <laughs>
and you should totally come on this show yeah (laughs) as they all should uh but did having done all that in australia like wearing so many hats help you when suddenly you found yourself swept up in hollywood doing the signing the contracts for the wilfred new west version so when we talked about at the start of the show and probably a bit more articulate now but when we talked about the start of the show how we feel about the writer's strike australian artists it's like we're playing in a completely different game it's with different rules and different outcomes and and so when you go to Hollywood, nothing makes sense. Everything is different. Um, one of the, one of the things for me is I I could tell pretty much if an Australian is lying to me, you know. Um, whereas I can't tell if an American is. I still can't. I lived there for five years and I visited so many times, and it's just like you know, because you sometimes people promise things and they actually come true in Hollywood. I know that there's that you know cliche that they speak they speak a lot of they say a lot of stuff and it doesn't come true but sometimes it does come true and i can't tell the difference <laughs> between the light the, the lies and the um and and the truth tellers i don't know what they're like for an australian i can tell pretty much you know level of education background all that kind of stuff whereas in america america i can't really unless it's not in hollywood anyway unless it's blatantly um obvious uh so you know you get lied to a lot and um People who have played the game over there and understand the percentages can easily screw you over there because there's no one, there's no benefit in them to look up. You know, you don't look up, don't get looked after financially. So you need to, I don't know, like the next time I, I signed format deals, I was a lot better and I was a lot, I knew what to look out for. Whereas the first time, and particularly in Australia, there weren't, I mean, the Kathy and Kim format was the first format that had been done in years. And that was just before us. So we didn't know how much money we should be making out of it. And whereas now people have done it a lot and they all, they're a lot more savvy. So we got screwed over a little bit on the financial side of things. So that's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. Hmm. Yes. (laughs) The newbies came to town. Yeah, yeah. They see it's coming. Whereas now, you know, the second time I was suddenly, I was represented by CAA and so they drove me, drove a really hard bargain for, you know, when we, when we did the lowdown contract, we lowdown, unfortunately never got up, but we wrote, we did a pilot and, uh, and, you know, but from then on I was, um, I, you know, unfortunately I haven't had, you know, done a, a show that's had four seasons like Wilfred did since then, because I know my stuff now when it comes to contracts. <laughs> you were a journalist, is that right? At the beginning of yeah. your career before you started acting? Were you an investigative journalist? No, just show business and a bit of sport. Right. And now you um you do podcasts as well. Yeah, until recently. I, I gave up about a year ago. Okay. Yeah. And was that did that come from your sort of journalistic leanings or where did Yeah, that come yeah, from? it did. Yeah. I did a show called um Agony Uncles, Agony Aunts and the Agony of Life and I really enjoyed getting because I'd given up journalism say by two thousand and four, two thousand three was my lot, you know, but before I kind of started making a living out of writing and acting. And so when I did the Agony series, that kind of got me back into the the swing of being a journalist again and, and interviewing people and, and putting things together on a factual basis. And I really, you know, I think that's in my genes because my mum and dad were journalists. So I, I really enjoyed that. And I thought the podcast was a way of doing it, a way of kind of keeping in touch with that. And I, and I love doing the podcast, but I'm a, a heavy editor so I would the booking as as Aaron knows takes days, mm-hmm. weeks, months, years. Yeah, <laughs> and then half an hour to do the podcast or an hour, and then like literally a day and a half on the edit, and that was just yeah. taking too much of my time time away from actually making doing things that made money. Right, that's a bit of a theme in this show. I keep on talking about money, and I think it's because when you get older, it becomes more important. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, the editing is always like, you always are like, oh, we've had such a fun time. And I mean, I'm sure Aaron can speak to this more than I can. But I've, uh, you know, had my hand at um, having my own podcast for a while. And then I was like, oh, and I loved it. And I loved the guests. And then I was always like, oh, my goodness, now I have to spend yeah a day in editing. <laughs> in garage band. And the thing with me is I'm always editing myself because I, can't, I go, just get to the fucking point, mate. <laughs> Yeah. What are you trying to say? Yes. I'm the first one to go from my edits. And like, I'm the same. I over edit. I want things to be like, sometimes the conversation may be awkward or whatnot. Cause we're, you know, you warm up, especially at the start. Yeah. So I want things to be snappy. I want things there to be a rhythm. And, and so I, I do sort of edit things, manipulate it in a way that it sounds maybe if we're like talking slowly, the audience doesn't know that because it, it comes out fast and snappy. Yeah. I mean, and that's what people want, essentially. People want to, you know, you were talking about the four-minute song before. I mean, that people want a, a breezy listen. We'll move on, though, because Spencer and I were discussing humour recently when writing a guest introduction, and we disagreed numerous times when I thought something was funny or he did and the other one didn't. Even with Matt, there was one joke that, I said it three times and he sits there staring at me like I was nothing, like I wasn't even there. Like, hello, this is hilarious. It's so clever and funny. But like we find ways to compromise. Have you had much experience with the suits taking away your jokes that you found hilarious? Or the opposite, do you often find putting in jokes that you don't find funny, but you know that others will? You, you don't know. Comedy is a mystery. It is. Isn't I it? mean, if you want to find out, you know, it's like every comedian talks about, like you're walking along, you know, on the way to the shop at 10 a.m. and you've thought of an amazing joke and you perform it on stage that night and it bombs. And all day you've got a spring in your step thinking, wait till I hear this. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> and then do it and cricket. Yes. Thank you. We don't know <laughs> what's going to happen. We, I mean, you fight for things because I'm old now. I, I remember I was in a network meeting recently and they were saying, we can lose this and everything. I said, you can't joke kill. You can't joke kill. Jokes are really hard to come up with. Yeah. And so th there's a propensity for people to kill jokes at script stage. I would say kill it. If you're going to kill it, kill it in the edit. Yeah. Um, when you yes. see it doesn't work because there's so many jokes that I think, oh, that could be a six out of 10. And then suddenly we do it and it's a nine out of 10 yeah. and vice mm. versa. So yeah, you, you got to be very, um, uh, you got to keep an open mind when, when it comes to comedy and, and be wary of people who, who are fascists about it who, yep. who try and just take them away because Matt and Spencer <laughs> well you know I mean you might cut it together and Matt will go you know that joke I didn't think it was funny you've made it funny yeah you know you just need to take take some breaths out <laughs> that's it it's just because I don't get Aaron's sense of humor sometimes I'm like what it's the American heart on my sleeve it's you know it's the cultural differences well, yeah, I mean, you, you would have been on the other end of that. And that was a big thing for me too, because I got, in, I got into trouble in writer's rooms for saying things like there's just something that gets lost in translation. And mm. an Australian audience, like I remember telling a story that an Australian audience, any Australian audience gets a giggle out of, and an American audience all turned on me because they just didn't see, there was just, they didn't see the twinkle. Yeah. There was mm. something they, they missed and mm. they just thought it was mean. And you go... What happened? What, 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 where was the, I, I guess it, uh, you know, I thought a lot about it. I guess it's the Puritan 
influence in America, which we're, and we're very much a convict kind of, you know. Yep. Yeah, scrappy and rough and. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think indigenous populations had a huge um, influence on our sense of humor, how dry and self-deprecating we are. That all comes from indigenous population. I mean, working with Aboriginal writers, Aboriginal comedians, their jokes, are, if it was on the Richter scale, they would barely register. Because they're yeah. so dry, yeah. they are. You know, their humor is so dry and just takes the piss in such a in such a kind of again dry manner. Um, and I think that's influenced Australian humor a lot. And I think there should be something written about that. Somebody mm. should do a PhD on it. Yeah, interesting. So, Adam, nearly twenty years after the wedge, have you been refining your celebrity impersonations? <laughs> I can't do any. Oh, who can I do? Steve Cooker does a great impersonation of the former Labor opposition leader in in uh, the UK called Neil Kinnock, but no one knows who he is anymore. So that impersonation has just gone to heaven. I've got a bunch of impersonations of people who are not famous anymore. <laughs> so, like, like who? There's a guy called Dave Graney who is a mu- is a musician. Oh, yeah. Uh, something about snakes, wasn't there? Snakes. Dave Grunny and the coral snakes. The coral snakes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like he's got hipsters and flipsters, man. You know, and you know that that we back in 1996 that got a lot of laughs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It I, like last night, I was watching a Winnie the Pooh thing from Winnie the Pooh the musical, and I was trying to do Pooh. Oh, I was I was like crying with laughter because every time I was like. Oh, poo. But it does, that doesn't sound like poo. So I'll be like, oh, poo. No, it doesn't sound like poo. I'm like, oh, poo. And I just like sitting there for an hour. Oh, poo. Oh, oh, poo. Oh, poo, like honey. Oh, poo. Oh, poo, like honey. Oh, poo. Oh, poo. Oh. Crying with laughter because I just could not get the cadence because he just has that, that, oh, poo. No, I can't just, I can't do it. Yeah, manipulate the voice. Yeah, I can't. I cannot do it at all. But is it about manipulating the voice, or is it about inhabiting the character, Adam? Well, there's that. So I think if it's long form, the character. If it's short form, in the impersonation. And mm-hmm. so it's all about you know voice manipulation. In most cases, if you're seeing they're stand ups, you know impersonations is more a stand up thing. Yeah, mm. and singers, singers as well, because it's about hearing that. Yeah, very musical. Um, we'll have to see what impersonations you can. Do another time, Matt, because I haven't asked you yet, have we? I just got a few more questions and we can round up. A bottle episode's much of a thing in Aussie TV. We've spoken about it in the show before that bottle episodes are the, the one room episode where they're just, you know, at home waiting to leave to go to that event. Yeah, the West Wing did it. We're talking the West Wing a lot today for some reason. But yeah, that whenever they ran out of money, Aaron Sorkin would write a bottle episode. That's it. Now, do you find them a welcome challenge or a pain in the butt? I love them. You love them? Yeah. I love them because I come from a theatre background. So anything yeah. that looks like theatre, you know. I remember Lars von Trier saying mm. um, he doesn't like theatre at the theatre. He likes theatre on film. Uh, but I like theatre in the theatre and I like theatre on film. I love that kind of four-door fast type situation where you can have in a, in a bottle episode. And I also like boundaries. I think that helps me with my, my creativity. So, yeah, no, I'm into them. That's my answer. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's cool. And now if you were selling... Aussie humor to the world with just one film. What film would that be? Chopper. Chopper. Yeah. I think Chopper is one of the funniest films. No Americans get how funny it, it actually is. I actually haven't watched it. Um, All right. Uh, and, and, and because it, it probably is the American in me because it's like, it seems like such a horrific topic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like- totally. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, it's, it's terrible. It's it's terrible. No, Muriel's Wedding is a great film, and I love it, but it's it's too big. It doesn't represent the Australian comedy sensibility. It's not mm-hmm. dry enough. The castle at times does it, but I think it's a little saccharine. Uh, whereas Chopper, it's like you know where he's he just shot Neville Bardos, and Neville Bardos says he wants to go to hospital, and he goes, "Why would I? Why would I shoot a bloke? And then, why would I shoot a bloke? And then take him to the hospital? It defeats the purpose of having shot him in the first place. <laughs> and it's like that kind of stuff. That is Australian humour. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Eric Banner d- did it in Funny People as well. He's like, you know, he's explaining AFL to. He's explaining it, it, AFL yeah. to Adam Sandler and he goes, so this fucker passes it to this fucker and that fucker passes it to that fucker. And then Adam Sandler goes, where are your black guys? Because <laughs> yeah. it's like watching sport, American watching sport, and there's no black guys. <laughs> he goes, there's a couple out there. There's a couple out there. <laughs> it's this funny condition. Just on the indigenous community, this whole bullshit fight we're in at the moment is just. Yeah. Yes. Know. Goodness gracious, man. Look, look, Kamal. Sorry. Anyways, we won't get onto that. Vote yes. I know. I voted yes for the Republic and I'll vote yes for the voice. And it looks like I'm going to be in the losing team mm-hmm. in both. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess that's I guess that's fine. I went down swinging. Yeah. Put on the right side of history. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Our last mm. question. All right. Now, because this is completely apropos of what we were just talking to, is such serious things. Lastly, which stoner dog, Snoopy, Wilfred, or Scooby-Doo, would you like to be stuck on a desert island with, and why? Oh, Snoopy for sure. I just, I, you know, I just think he's a sweetheart and uh, he's got an amazing imagination. Mm-hmm. I've, I've already spent, I've already spent twenty years on a desert island with Wilfred. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, I'm a Snoopy man, true and true. Now, did that soak ever get washed? Because it just does not look like it ever got washed. <laughs> no, I don't think the Australian one did, but the American one, they had like they had repeat versions of it. So, you know, if yeah. it ever got wet, you know, so Jason just like, you know, it was just had a bunch of them. Whereas uh, that suit was found in a, in a um, costume hire place in Mooney Ponds. Mm-hmm. And two days before we were due to give it back after doing the short film, the whole place burnt down. Oh, so you just kept it. So we just kept it. No, we paid them some money. We paid them for it, but uh, <laughs> that, that would devastate it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've seen pictures of Banana Land, which is a Kate Miller Heike's new musical, and there seems to be somebody in a similar suit. I don't know if it's a dog or what it is, but. Anyway. Well, she is from Toowoomba. So, <laughs> well, she was she was at uni up there with, with us, her and her boyfriend, her and her husband now, I guess. But um, yeah, he was in a bunch of bands. But uh, is she in Brisbane? She's from Brisbane, right? And she, but she would go up there and visit him. I remember seeing her at the club. Yeah. Yeah. I think she's in Brisbane. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's where we come from. What's the, what's the musical about? Uh, it's about a punk band that um, that like has an accidental, like somebody misrepresents one of their songs and then they become a big hit with like the kids, with the kiddies and the mums. Oh, so yeah. It's sort of like the Wiggles sort of thing where they're like a punk band, but then they have to decide if they're going to stick to their punk roots or if they're going to go commercial and become that's a cool. band. It's supposed to be very funny. It was for Brisbane Festival. Wow. Good honor. We need an identifiable sound for Australian musicals. I've said this before, and I, it was actually in your questions, but I, I ended up crossing it off because I feel like if you put on a, like Matt said the other week, that he heard this musical and he knew right away it was from London. You put on a Broadway musical, you know it's from Broadway, but yeah. you put on an Australian musical, you have no friggin' clue because we don't have an identifiable sound. So I'm glad mm. that Kate. Miller Heidke and and even John Foreman, he's been doing quite a fair bit lately in musical theatre. That uh, and Anthony Costanza, I think his name is that 
people are starting to put more and more and more work out there because we need to find an identifiable sound that is you know than Australian musical but not just that is a hit that yeah. is palatable to everybody around the world so that these albums will sell or will be heard around the world yeah. so that fandoms like for six and and dear Evan Hansen and all these shows that build their huge fandoms based on the cast recordings they're able to grow and find an, an audience I haven't the last time I heard yeah. an Australian musical was I think Dollar in the Jar Shane Warne the musical oh here we go <laughs> oh look I love Keating I, I love the original Keating yeah at the Melbourne Comedy Festival yeah. great show yeah that was amazing I didn't I didn't ever saw Shane Warne the musical even though I'm a cricket yeah. fan well Eddie's got a distinct sound Eddie Perfect yeah Eddie but he's writing for Broadway he's writing for Broadway well, mate. Well, he's writing Broadway musicals for Broadway I think that Casey Bonetto in Keating really captured an Australian voice it need it needs to be consistent and needs to be so that mm. when you hit play and that overture starts or even if we don't have overtures in our musicals whatever it is that makes us unique as soon as you hit play you know before an accent is heard well you know that the, the, the relationship between Cheryl Kernow and Gareth Evans in in Keating the musical and he goes I'm in peril Cheryl <laughs> it's just fucking that's Australian <laughs> I'm in peril Cheryl yeah brilliant and that's sort of that that's very early 90s sort of fast forward that sort of style of humor that like the late show yeah that with my working dog yeah there's, yeah that's very australian not happy jan the musical what is the australian i think you know the criticism here when it comes through it'll be or well, hacking why are you in a position adam to say what the australian voice is and isn't no disrespect to people mm. who are creating brilliant work. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, it's let's lock that. it in. It's about a cohesive voice. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah, they yeah. all are. It's about finding that when you put all these shows together, that's a cohesive voice. And I'm not just talking about mm. vocally voice or written no. voice. It's a sound. It's a vibe. Yeah. It's a tone. It's a tone. It's a, it's a, it's a genre. It's a genre. Mm. Got American musicals, British musicals. Why don't we have Australian musicals? We do have our own vibe and sound in music you know australian rock we talked about australian comedy you're dead right i mean australian rock is such a clear it's such a clear voice but but is it around anymore is australian rock around anymore really and it's kind of americanized yeah (laughs) um because it was a very pub it was a very pub kind of feel you know and i found that you know i found that yeah in a way oz rock feel had a bit of sydney and perth vibes to it even maybe adelaide whereas melbourne was a bit more kind of birthday party you know punk kind of it was a bit cooler in that kind of yeah yeah um whereas yeah, Sydney was more like pubs, sweaty pubs. And Brisbane was kind of, you know, Brisbane was kind of go-betweens and the Saints. And that was a bit different. To, it was a bit, you wouldn't, I, I don't feel like when I say the go-betweens and the Saints, that's Oz Rock. Yeah. Anyway. We'll get there eventually. So start putting that in people's heads. Anyways, thank you so much. You made it through our torture chamber in one piece. I loved it. Sorry, I talked a lot. No, no, we love that. I, I, I don't always yeah. never want to run over time because I always feel awful like I'm keeping people's time enough already as it is. But, you know, when people talk, I love it. I really give do. it the snip, Aaron. Oh. It, like, you know. Uh, give it a brisk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, we just had a Jewish holiday, apparently. I'm not Jewish. Though. Yes, we did. Yeah, that's it. Anyways, before we let you go, where can people find you on the social medias? Um. At Adam Zwar, at uh, Twitter is the easiest for me. It's my, that's my drug of choice. 
Yep. Oh. It's very simple. You know, I've gone to threads. I'm there. It's Wildwood at threads and Instagram. Z-W-A-R Wood. And it's the reference there is Marwood, from, who's the I character in With an L and I. There you go. Yeah. If, if you guys are With an L and I fans, I don't know. No, I know. It's Richard E. Grant, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, the ultimate out-of-work actor movie, movie, if you're ever interested. Yeah, I've heard of her, just never seen it. If you get a chance, with another eyes, great. It's it's set in nineteen sixty nine in in England, and um, Richard E. Grant and Paul McGann play these two out of work actors who end up um, going on holiday by, by mistake. <laughs> oh, do they? Oh. Yeah. Well, Richard E. Grant should come on this show by mistake. <laughs> Anyways, that's it from us. <laughs> you take care and we shall see you next time. Uru. Awesome. Thank you, guys. That was great, Adam. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny. This as soon as I come out to the country, I all of a sudden, you know, I'm at the pub and I'm like, "Hey, is hey, is all?" Oh Jesus! You know, and I sort of like go into this whole thing. And yeah, people yeah. Are like, hmm, where are you from? <laughs> what do your family think in the states? Can they can they detect a change? Oh, Matthew, you have such a lovely Australian accent. Oh Thanks, wow. Man. Where where are you from? Gardner, Massachusetts. Oh North wow. East. Jersey from okay. New Jersey. Oh yeah, I was born in New Jersey, but born in Jersey. <laughs> yeah. We don't talk about that. Everyone's born in New Jersey and then they leave. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Say right. fuck like rabbits in New Jersey. <laughs> well, it's so cold. Sorry, that's terrible. We love New Jersey. I love the Sopranos.